It's Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each year, the Aspen Institute holds its annual Aspen Ideas Festival. Hundreds of inspired and provocative speakers and thousands of participants descend on the Institute's 40-acre campus, tucked near towering mountain peaks in Aspen, Colorado. We want you to be part of the festival, so we're featuring fascinating conversations with festival speakers throughout the event. Aspen Ideas To Go is a weekly show produced by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. The Aspen Ideas Festival is jam-packed with on-stage discussions touching on topics such as climate change, U.S. and world politics, psychology, technology, and health. For our series, we've asked a group of journalists to step off the stage and get behind the mic. These podcast takeover hosts handpicked festival speakers for discussions on a myriad of topics. Today's takeover host is Michelle Norris. She's an award-winning journalist and founded the Race Card Project. She also directs the Aspen Institute's new program on race, cultural identity, and inclusion. It's called The Bridge. Here's Norris. I have the pleasure to sit down and spend some time with Mayor Mitch Landrew of the city of New Orleans. Mitch Landrew is serving in his second term as the 61st mayor of the city of New Orleans since 2010. New Orleans has been ranked the number one metropolitan area for overall economic recovery by the Brookings Institution and as America's best city for school reform by the Fordham Institute. That is saying something because if we allow ourselves to go back a few years, New Orleans was really struggling to get back up on its feet after Katrina sacked the city. Well, it's a wonderful thing for people to say about the people of the city of New Orleans, and we've made a lot of progress since Katrina. When the storm hit, you know, it, it hurt us really badly. You know, we lost 1,800 of our brothers and sisters, and 500,000 homes across the Gulf Coast got hurt, and 250,000 were destroyed. All of our schools were gone. But the, the people of the city did something really spectacular. And instead of doing the the hard but simple thing, which was put the schools and everything just back like they were, we realized that the city had had some struggles, as wonderful as it was before the storm. And so we really started to think about how we were going to give ourselves permission to reconstruct our healthcare delivery system, our education system, our system of government. And we've been in this pretty aggressive, complete redesign, which honors our history because we love who we are and where we came from, and it's a beautiful history, while simultaneously kind of preparing ourselves for the 21st century to make sure everybody has a real chance. And we've made some significant headway. We have a lot of work to do, but it's a pretty wonderful thing to be part of. Was it easier in some way because you had to tear everything up and start from scratch? You know, that's a, people have asked me that question a lot. They've asked me in a way that doesn't sound right, which is do we need a Katrina to... And I would say, no, nobody ever wants to go through that. It was awful. And they asked me again, do you need a catastrophe in order to jolt a community into doing something radically different if you're heading in the the wrong direction? And unfortunately, I, I think that I've found that even though the people of New Orleans responded magnificently well to this trauma, and it did give us an opportunity to create something new that was laid on what our, what our appropriate history was, that m- most of us will not be jolted into doing something dramatically different unless we have to. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a shame. I think that we, we, ought to be, we ought to condition ourselves to change more rapidly. And if we could do that, if we could, you know, we use the word entrepreneurial. Uh, I think that's a good word because you keep trying to find new ways to solve old problems. Um, we, we, we continue to innovate. That's important. But just the, the, the idea of change itself, I think, scares most people. Oh, yeah. And I think change that, is hard. And I think change is really, really hard. Um, it is easier to build a brand new house than to reconstruct an old one. Well, and change is hard in part because failure. People are afraid of failure. I think that's probably true, and I, and I think that that's, it's a worthwhile thing to be afraid of, but a lot of times you just have to work through your fear. Um, most of the things that we worked on are better than they were before, so I think uh, it would be wonderful if we could just change better and more rapidly and change correctly. I think sometimes human beings have a tendency to want to hold on to what they have because it's hard to see what's in the future. I don't particularly think that's a good tendency. I'm somewhat of a change 
agent. I think change for the sake of change in many instances is good because I've seen so many uh, instances where change has improved what we have. You don't have to throw everything out. You can continue to modify, you can continue to innovate, you continue to include people and be creative and make new things. That's dynamic and it's important. And so in some instances, um, learning how to change well is better than saying, no, we're not gonna change at all. You are in many ways a change agent. I mean, you've, you've marshaled school reform, you're asking the city to take a very hard look at violence, at the reality of violence, at the roots of violence. You're also asking the city to take a hard look at the hard truths around its history. Mm -hmm. And the removal of the Confederate monuments in um, the city has really stirred up a, a, a deep cauldron of, of passions. It sure has. You know, it's all, it's all, Dr. King said we're all tied together in the seamless garment of destiny. And that's a nice phrase, and it's beautiful. I don't think people really think much about what that really means. That is, that is a specific description, that we are, in, in essence, tied together. And if we don't understand that, if we continue to try to rip it apart, it doesn't make any sense. I, I feel very, very strongly because of my own life experiences and because of where I came from. And because New Orleans has always been uh, what I would say a hot cauldron or a hot mess of a whole bunch of different people from a lot of different places that have assimilated and created something better than what we were all individually, out of many we are one, that we're actually, perfect's the wrong word, but a great reflection of what the Founding Fathers were talking about of, of our strength comes from our community. Now, it's a very hard thing to do, but that is our history. We are formerly 300 years old. We were founded in 1718 by Bienville. But for a thousand years or even more before that, we had indigenous peoples that were in and around the land that we live in. And the reason that's significant is because they brought and had sophisticated cultures. And they brought music, they brought faith, they brought a whole bunch of stuff. And then when folks started to migrate into that part of the country, which was not yet the United States of America, we're one of the unique places where we had France and then Spain had it for a while. And then we had folks come from the German coast during that period of time. Um, what, who are now African-Americans, right, which were slaves, were brought from Senegal and Gambia, particularly through Haiti. Mm -hmm because of John Law and all the way over. And so when all of those people began to occupy that physical land, all of the different cultures, all of the different food, all of the different music got really smashed together and something better got created. The, just, you can see it in the food. Mm -hmm. Forget about the politics. I mean, it really is a gumbo. It is a, it is a gumbo. And as a matter of fact, the word gumbo came from Senegal. It didn't come from the French or the Irish or the Italian or the Germans, which were there. But it came from Senegal, and now the, the French, the Irish, the Italians, the Germans, all of us that have been there at this time over the years have gotten together. If you think about the history of free people of color and what used to happen on free Sundays in Congo Square, everybody came together who wasn't supposed to be hanging out. And so what's, what's happened over time is this, this beautiful culture has come out of that that the rest of the world has celebrated as being the soul of America. And so as we got post-Katrina, and we started looking forward. The question was, if Katrina and Rita didn't cause all of our problems, and New Orleans was bigger than Atlanta and Houston in 1960, and we're smaller now, what, what happened? Who are we? And so what I've kind of asked the city to do, which they've given me permission to do, by the way, and have fully participated in, is to really look in the mirror and say, who are we? And as we began to do that, while simultaneously preparing the city for our future, 2018, our 300th anniversary, when we can say to the world, look, thank you for giving us all of this money. Thank you for working with us. We've now reconstructed this laboratory of innovation and change that we can now share with the country. The physical spaces in and around New Orleans began to come into focus. And Wenton Marcellus told me who I asked, I said, Wenton, I need you to help me curate the 300th anniversary. And this was three years ago. This was well before this Donald is a long Trump and, and Hillary process. Clinton. This is way, way, way back when, before we were talking about, it was way before Charleston, three and a half years ago, we began planning for the 300th anniversary. Went and said to me, have you ever thought about how the city adorns itself? What are the symbols that reflect who New Orleans is? And do they really reflect our total history? And he said, by the way, have you thought about the statue of Robert E. Lee? And I said, no. He said, well, I'll help you curate the 300th anniversary, but I want you to think about 
those statutes and what they are and what they mean and who put them up. I said, well, I don't, what do you mean? He said, well, Louis Armstrong and other people left this city because they didn't feel welcome. Mm-hmm. They didn't feel included. And I said, well, I still don't understand what you're talking about. I go by their statutes every day. It's where we watch Mardi Gras. They're part of our history. He said, yes, but have you ever thought about looking at them from my perspective? And, of course, he stopped me in my tracks. So I called Walter Isaacson, who's the, one of the great historians in the world. I said, Walter, does Winton know what he's talking about? And he said, well, I can't get in Winton's shoes at the moment. He said, but historically, he's exactly correct. And when we started looking at the, why those statutes were put there and what they were, they're in prominent places of reverence on public land, which distinguishes them from a, a much larger debate about other stuff. And those statutes were put up well after the Civil War to send a message to the rest of the country that notwithstanding the fact that the Confederacy lost, we the South were not going to yield and that we were right and our cause was just and it was different from what the rest of the world thought. So in, in essence, they're not historically truthful. And unusual because usually people who are not victorious do not get to create, uh-huh. you know, if you, if you lost the war, you don't create the monument well, that stands in the Well, of course, when I started square. doing historical research on this, you didn't really need to do research to understand that when the United States beat Great Britain, we did not put a statue of King George on the Washington Mall. We didn't, we didn't do that. When, when Jackson beat Pakenham at the Battle of New Orleans, we didn't put a statue of Pakenham up. So it seemed counterintuitive. So what is that about? And, you know, essentially what it was about is some people in the South um, hanging on to what happened during the Civil War and never really reckoning uh, as though somehow it was just a friendly family fight and that everybody should get past it. And as we get into the very difficult issues that we're facing in the country, um, I've always believed and think it's provable that the more we do together, the more inclusive we are, the more we invite different people from races, creeds, colors, and religions, which, by the way, have complete ownership of the United States of America, we're all the same. We're not different, essentially because of race. We have different histories, et cetera. But in many instances, because of the coming together of so many different peoples and because New Orleans hasn't always been a melting pot, those statutes never really reflected who New Orleans is or, more importantly, who New Orleans ever was because New Orleans was never a Confederate town. And so after the war, when they kind of took those spaces, the people of New Orleans today think that we want to course correct not only do we not want to ignore history, we want to say it correctly, which is why we've taken those actions that we've taken. So you delivered a, a speech in May. I did. Where you outlined why you needed to do this. It was an eloquent speech. Anyone listening to this podcast needs to go and listen to that speech or perhaps at least find the text and read it. Because you ask America to look in the mirror and you ask America to do some reckoning. You, you provide a little bit of a history lesson. And you say there, and it's odd for me to quote you to you, but you say there, um, now with these shocking words still ringing in your ears after you talk through what slavery really did mean, you said, I want to try to gently peel from your hands the grip on a false narrative of our history that I think weakens us and make straight a wrong turn we made many years ago. Correct. I want to ask you about the tone you decided to take in this speech, because it's, it's not tongue-in-cheek, but it's, let's say, colloquial. And I also want to want to know that if you when you started on this road, did you know that you would inflame the kinds of passions that no. you did? People mm. tried to stop you. People protested this. People um, are still quite angry at you for what you have done. A lot of questions in there. I'll right. try to. I'll try right. to. I'll try to. And un- I should unwind. note that people have also celebrated you for what you. Yeah, did, I'll try to un- unwind a couple of them. Um, first of all, the speech really was to the people of New Orleans. You see, New Orleans is truly a city of many nations, a melting pot, a bubbling cauldron of many cultures. There is no other place quite like it in the world that so eloquently exemplifies the uniquely American motto, e pluribus unum, unum, out of many, we are one. But there are also other truths about our city that we must confront. It was not intended really for a larger audience. Um, My view as a people of New Orleans are representative of the people of America and everything that's happened in New Orleans before and after Katrina is a perfect reflection of the aspirations of the founding fathers. 
and I wanted to make a statement as, as the formal mayor of a city that occupies a continuous government from 300 years ago to today, that in case anybody was confused about it, New Orleans is a proud part of the United States of America and a great example of what America looks like when she really is great. That was, it was kind of like a testament to, I'm telling you now that those people that were talking before did not reflect who we really are, and I want to set the historical record straight. The second part, historically, was to actually correct the historical record about who we were. And the other part of it, and the reason why I use specifically the language, I want to gently peel your hands, was because it's a recognition that this is a very emotional and hard thing for the other side. I didn't, I didn't want to say, well, y'all are awful for thinking the way that you do. You have no basis for it. It's all based in ignorance. That's really not true. It's a much deeper feeling. And I was trying to make sure that I put myself in the shoes of Southern families that have been there forever whose sons or daughters may have died in this particular fight. And want to honor their and, ancestors. And want to honor the fact that they died. Uh, and because they didn't have as much to say about fighting in the war as they should have been, and poor whites had to participate in it as well. So it's not a condemnation of families whose family members participated in the war. It's not that. But I think that you can recognize that they made a sacrifice on behalf of a cause that they thought was important and simultaneously admit, now that we look back on it, that the cause was wrong and say it very clearly so that we can have reconciliation. But from an African-American's perspective, you can't just say as a white Southerner, just get over it. It really wasn't a war about slavery. It really wasn't a war that dehumanized American citizens. It really was about economics. No, it wasn't. And it's important to recognize that and to recognize that and to say that the cause was wrong and that the Confederacy lost. And by the way, the Confederacy was not all of the South. Not everybody in the South agreed with the cause of the Confederacy. And the Confederacy was never a formal governmental entity. It was never recognized by the United States as a formal governmental entity. So there's no need for everybody in the South to feel upset or ashamed to talk about that war in its appropriate context and recognizing going forward that that cause that Robert E. Lee led or that P.T. Beauregard led or that Jeff Davis led was wrong. And once you do that, I have a very strong feeling that the African-American community is going to say thank you. And now how can we move forward together? But it's really kind of hard to have that conversation when you're forcing African-Americans or anybody else for that matter to walk by a statue that's in a place of reverence to try to honor a cause that was wrong and revere somebody for a history that's not correct. And I thought it was really important that New Orleans adorned itself, you know, with the symbols and the figures that reflect our entire history so that we could be inclusive. Now is the time to send a new message to the next generation of New Orleanians, a message about the future, about the next 300 years and beyond. Let us not miss this opportunity, New Orleans, and let us help the rest of America do the same because now, see, now is a time for choosing. Now is the time to actually make this city the city we should have always been had we gotten it right the first time. So the reason I said it that way is because that's why the statute had to come down. That's why you couldn't just add something to it because the addition to that thing didn't tell the whole story. And subsequently as well, if you follow through my, my thought process, when you, when you take a physical city and you think about the whole thing being a museum, then you have to tell our whole history. And I, I, I did something kind of, the harshest part of the speech was actually accusing the so-called historians who feel as though for some reason they own that space of historical malfeasance. Because if their mission is to preserve our history, then they forgot the other, you know, 997, 96 years of it and everything that everybody else put in it because there are no curative spaces to the kinds of things that we talked about, not just from an African-American perspective, but from other cultures that we've had as well. So those who were opposed to this, who still are opposed to this, who still you know, are, are giving you a fair amount of guff, how do you bring them to the table and work towards something that, that starts to feel like reconciliation? Well, that's, a, uh, that's uh, again, let me say this. There are a group of people who are never going to agree with what we did or like it or think that my rendition of history is the correct one. 
they've accused me of being like ISIS. They've accused me of hiding history. They've accused me of trying to, to deny history. Well, you know, the monuments are down, and the history of what happened is still the same. You can't deny history. You can't change it. But you can adjust how you remember history and, and what you parts you remember and how you teach it and how you revere it. So my argument was that in this particular instance with these four monuments, three of which were put up by the same people for the same purpose explicitly to promote the cult of the lost cause, to be distinguished from statutes of Jefferson or Jackson or other founding fathers that may have owned slaves. Complete different issue, but worth talking about. And the Liberty Monument, which was purposely put up by the Klan to honor people that killed police officers who were trying to make a biracial city safe. The, the point of, of, of that was to say, okay, if you want to remember that, you have to remember that in context. And you have to remember that appropriately. So perhaps Robert E. Lee and Jeff Davis go in the cemetery with all of the other young men who were killed during the Confederate War. That's appropriate. And it makes sense. You don't, you don't just throw them away. And, and you put that appropriately in context. But in public circles and in public squares, if you're going to have something there, that ought to be reflective of who all of the people there. And more importantly, if you just get rid of the statues and you don't start getting to the root of why did they go up and what was the attitude that allowed them to be there? Are we inclusive city or are we an exclusive city? Are we asking people to come in or are we trying to push people out? Do we want to be big or do we want to be small? Do we want to be rich and, and deep and, and really, you know, just kind of very thoughtful about each other? Or do we want to say, no, this is mine, that's yours. Let's just stay separate and we'll have separate but equal and I hope we both do okay. That's not who New Orleans is. And that's not when I think that we're at our best. So my job as mayor of the city is very simple. I came in after Katrina, Rita, Ike, Gustav, the National Recession, the BPRs, but we were bankrupt. I had a very clear mission. Stop the city from falling over a cliff and going bankrupt. Stabilize it. Build a new foundation and turn it around so the next people have a great opportunity to choose between good and better options. That was my job. And in the meantime, to celebrate our 300th anniversary and hand it over to the next generation so the city of New Orleans can be as spectacular as I know that she can be. And we could not do that without dealing with the issue of race. And we, we, did, we spent a lot of time on it. It wasn't just about the monuments. We spent years talking about the welcome table and racial reconciliation. And this was just another pathway through the racial quagmire that the country finds itself in now. Now, Mayor, you know that I run a program here at Aspen that focuses on race and inclusivity sure. and American identity. It's, it's called The Bridge, and it's built on the work that I've done for years at the Race Card Project. And because of that, I know that many of the most productive conversations around race are not the ones that you hear. You don't oh, see yeah. them on television. They're not on podcasts. You don't hear them on the radio. They happen in individual spaces where individuals find each other and hear each other's truths, maybe not agree with each other, but at least... Correct have some way to understand each other. Is there an example of that that you can share around the Confederate issue? Yeah. Where people who, you know, really came to each other and they didn't understand or even agree with each other but at least hurt each other? Well, it's broader than that. You know, I, our children are going to teach us how to get along better. As, as our children grow up in a multi, much more diverse environment than we are, they don't have the same hang-ups as us. And so there are a lot of people who think the only way we can do this is to grow out because us old folks can't learn how to, how to get jiggy with it, as we say <laughs> in Did New Orleans. Did you just Orleans. really say that? Yes, you did. <laughs> the truth is that there are informal but structural things, structured things that people can do if they want to learn more about this and be involved in it. So when I was lieutenant governor, I began to think about this a lot because there needed to be some kind of place for people to go and do this. And the group of people that was doing this, I thought, better than anybody else, and I thought particularly in the South we should think about this because we have a special obligation to deal with this issue, was William Winter, who was the white governor of Mississippi many years ago, who after he left office started the William Winter Institute of Racial Reconciliation. And his executive director was Susan Glasser. My chief of staff when I was lieutenant governor, and now one of my deputy mayors, Judy Reese Morris, and Susan got the governor and I together and started talking about it. And he, and he said he built his model off of what happened in the reconciliation, you know, councils and committees in South Africa. Which focused on truth with focus and on, reconciliation. Which is called truth and reconciliation. You can't have reconciliation without truth. I mean, this is, everybody knows this. This is insane. When you have children and that get in a fight, every parent makes them apologize. Somebody has to say, I'm sorry, which recognizes the offense. 
And then the other person, as importantly, has to say, I receive that authentically. Now I forgive you. And the forgiveness has to be pure. That's pretty simple. We all know this. No matter what faith walk you're in, I'm sorry and I forgive you are essential. But there's got to be a way to do that. And people who don't know each other, that talk across each other, they don't see each other, they don't eat together, their kids don't go to school together, they don't praise together, they are susceptible to being brainwashed by other people who say that's an evil person because they look different. Or that word person's evil because his father was, you know, in the Confederate Army or the Klan or whatever. And not seeing individ- people as individuals. And so we began to work then. And when I became mayor, I took that model And for two years, before we even started talking about this, actually had what we call the welcome table. Now, the welcome table was very quiet. We announced it by by press release, but it wasn't a big hoopla. And what happened was, over time, 15 to 20 people of different colors, races, creeds, religions would meet individually, smallly, at a table. And they would get to know each other, and they would talk about things. And, of course, they had common projects. I think we had 25 welcome tables in New Orleans over a year and a half period of time. We had three or 400 people that were involved in it. And every one of those individuals were transformed by their experience in ways that they didn't even expect. So, you know, the original expectation is that the African-American people were going to teach the white people how to be less racist. Well, you know what? It went both ways. The white people also talk to the African-American people about, wow, you're, you're weird. You don't understand anything about white people. And maybe you can understand where we're coming from. At one experience that was really interesting to me because it, it goes to the appropriation of African-American music. Mm. Like, we've got this. Why y'all are trying to take it? And I have two of them, actually. Um, during the mayor's race, I used this jingle that was a gospel, you know, uh, song. And a gentleman that I was running against who was African-American said Mitch Landry is appropriating black music. Well, he didn't know that Bob Dylan actually wrote the song. <laughs> I was like, okay, look, you know, you really got to think about yeah. this because all of our music, it's just music, and it t- speaks to all of us. It's not white music or black music. It's, it gets transmitted over time. Amazing grace. I mean, you hear that in the Southern White Baptist churches, you know, that's now have been integrated. You hear it in the Black Baptist churches. You hear it in the Catholic churches. Is that a black song or is it a white song? It was written by a white man who, who was a ship captain. Well, whatever. I mean, it, you can't, it, again, everybody puts a racial lens on something that has less to do with race than anything else. So in any event, that was one example. Another example was an African-American gentleman who was a photographer that taught his kids and was mentoring them. And he says, you know, this white guy that's in my welcome table wants to come, you know, help me with the kids. And I said, well, okay, well, so what? He goes, my kids are not going to respond to him. They, they, they're afraid of white men. And they're not going to like him. And so I'm afraid to let him in. And I said, well, why don't you try? I said, why don't you let him, let him, because then I'll, so about a month later, I saw him, and I I won't call his name, but if he's listening, he'll know who he is. He says, you won't believe this. He said, my kids love that guy. (laughs) And I said, well, the reason why they love him, and this has been universally true, that there's not a child that will reject you if you kneel down and look them in the eyes and see them with an open heart, and they don't see race. We teach them to do that. We, te- we teach our kids to see this. We're the ones who do it. And so we have to unlearn why we're teaching our kids these barriers that we see. And so essentially these adults are learning that, and they have found each other, and it has been spectacular. So are there any secrets to the welcome table when you bring people together? Is it, does food help? Do you, <laughs> <laughs> I well, assume if normal. you're rather in New Orleans, there's yeah, always you gotta food. Yeah, you got to eat. If you're in New Orleans, <laughs> you got to eat. And alcohol helps. Um, but, you know, no, it's just New Orleans is a very familiar place. And, and typically... If you come to the city of New Orleans and you're on the street, you'll be welcomed by everybody. And so we're very open. I think people probably a little bit more guarded when they get by themselves and you're really kind of not sure what you're going to get. But, but just fellowship and uh, being available to each other. Now, the one thing that always works, it's like going to summer camp. Um, for the kids who are fighting, you put them in the same room and you give them a common project and they eventually figure out that they're actually on the same side. Well, we did that. And so each one of these groups left a gift for the city. A so they, public uh, project that, that they, they tried designed. to solve. They, well, no, it was a public project, that they, a physical project that they designed. Oh, designed, not so solved. They, they actually go, designed Well, it. they had problems that, that they solved, but eventually they had to leave something behind. And so some of them left artwork all over the city. Some of them built things. It was, a, it was designed to make them do things together and to rely on each other. And now they just, it worked out well. It's not that it's a utopia. But it's fair to say that each of those individuals is, is transformed now Wherever and see the are. world. And essentially, it, it's really simple. 
they saw the other people as they see the other people as human beings now. Wherever people are as they listen to this, perhaps they'll be inspired to think about it. It's welcome a great table. That welcome know. table, William Institute William went to Institute of Racial Reconciliation at Ole Miss and you know, they've they've been great partners for us in its help, but we need to do more of it. Now there's a there's a parlor game that's being played um, in New Orleans and Washington and elsewhere with the uh, notoriety that you've gotten for this, for the transformation of the city of New Orleans, uh, knowing that you're term limited. There's this question that's out there about whether you have higher ambitions and whether you would consider a, 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 a presidential run. It's early. We just we just had one <laughs> a few months ago, but people are already starting to speculate the, the answer a, to about that, 2020. Yeah, I've heard that. The, the answer to that question is no, we're not running for president. It's a typical question, and it's a parlor game that the media ask all the time. But the, the, the my, my question is not whether you're running, but do you feel at this moment that you have something unique that you can and should offer the country? Well... The, the answer to that for all of us that have done good work, whether you're in politics or in government or policy like you are, is you always have something to offer. And when you think about what you're going to do in your life in the future, you always think about, well, where, where, could, I, where could I actually do that? There are a couple of things that, have, that, that are uh, interesting about this question. First of all, we just elected a president. President Trump has been in office for a very short period of time. The country should focus on what we need to do to make the country better with President Trump as our president? That's the question. All of the political pundits that always want to talk about the next election the next day, it, it exhausts the American people. You know, our job is to find a way to make government work and, and within the framework that we have today. That is the mission, and everybody ought to stay focused on that mission. Secondly, um, I have a job right now, and I don't have time to think about anything other than finishing strong and completing the job that's before me every day. The third thing is I've been doing this for 30 years. Cheryl and I have five children, and, you know, I want to take a nap. <laughs> and so I, I, don't, I, I, just won't, I won't let myself think about what I'm doing later, but I've done this for 30 years. It's a long time, and there are other people that have a lot to contribute. What the future holds for anybody, you know, that's in God's hands. I mean, who, who would know? But I'm not thinking about that. Of course, I have ears, so I can hear people talking about that. I would just say to the country that, there is a need for us to come together, and we're not going to come together by accident. It is a purposeful thing that we do here. That is why on all of the issues that are confronting the country, specifically around making us afraid of each other because we're tired or we're hungry or we're cold, that we want to try to get the country in a place where everybody has opportunity and everybody has responsibility. And if we can get there and everybody can feel like they're being seen and heard, we're going to be in a better place. And this is not inconsequential because all of the smart people are trying to figure out, well, what happened to the white rural people that used to vote for Democrats? And what happened to the whatever? I, I, I hear that. I, I listen to that a lot. And, and, and when you hear people yelling or screaming, it means that they want to be heard. It means that they have something to say. It means that they're in pain. So instead of dismissing them, like we have dismissed African-Americans forever, or instead of uh, dismissing um, white working class people that are from rural areas, listen and hear them and try to find a way to help them understand. Because I really believe this. They are very much alike. The same things that plague, and because I was lieutenant governor of the state and I represented the whole state and I, and I, and I traveled the back waters and the bywaters and the roads and I know these individuals, they're good people. And I, I, I think about this, this divide that people say that we have between the rural and urban, but I've been to church in very small towns and in very small churches in rural Louisiana, and Amazing Grace sounds exactly the same in the inner city. And, you know, this notion that they're not people of faith, family, and country, and, those, and we don't want the same things is not true. And I just feel like that we are, we are too susceptible to being pulled apart for fearing terror, fearing African Americans, fearing whites that might be racist, and that we're allowing ourselves, we're choosing to allow ourselves to be pulled apart. And it will happen, and it will continue to happen unless those of us that don't think that way say, you know what, that's not the right pathway. There is another pathway, and there is a better thing at the end of the pathway that needs to be created. And I think people in the country, Republican, Democrat, no matter what faith walk you walk in, you have to recommit yourself to that notion. And I think that's when America's really at her best. And we're not there right now. And I think that's worth talking about and worth confronting. Mayor Landry, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. It has been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you this, for all your work. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. I'm Michelle Norris.
You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go, and we're on the ground at the Aspen Ideas Festival. We've asked a handful of journalists to take over the show this week and interview festival speakers. This is the 13th festival, and this year the focus is on building civil discourse around the pressing issues America is facing at home and abroad. An Aspen Institute mandate is to create opportunities for deep dialogue, and that's what the festival aims to do. So that you can take part, we're featuring these relevant and engaging podcast takeover conversations. Now, back to today's show. I'm Michelle Norris, and this is the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast, and I'm sitting with Susan Orlean. Susan, you describe yourself as an author, a staff writer for The New Yorker, a dog owner, a gardener, a parent, a frequent lecturer, speaker, an occasional teacher, a very occasional guest editor, and you go on and on. You're a woman who wears <laughs> many, many, many hats. And the funny thing is that primarily I'm, I like to think of myself as a typist. Since uh, really? I, spe- I spend most of my time sitting at a keyboard typing. Well, that's what I want to talk to you about today, is I want to talk to you about how you write, where you write, where your ideas come from. I have always been curious about creative spaces, about where people go, the, the altars they create, the rooms that they create, the space that you need to be the most creative. Where is your special place that you go to write? Or do you have a special place? Because sometimes people say it's the kitchen table. It, it, right. Well, I have, I live part-time in Los Angeles, part-time in the Hudson Valley. So to begin with, I have, I'm fortunate to have a multiplicity of um, locations at which I must write. And I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how much the physical environment matters to me. I've come to realize that what matters is more uh, a state of mind, which is a sense that I will not be interrupted. But I've written in hotel rooms, and I've written while I've been traveling. And what matters is that quality of the space, which is knowing that no one is going to come. And uh, I mean, I write it, I work at home, I have a space at home, we converted our garage into a writing space for me. My husband works at home too. And as much as I, he has his own space. And as much as I love my husband, and I love the fact that we can go and have lunch together and so forth, it became very difficult for me because at any time he might come down into my office and say, do you remember if we paid the uh, <laughs> bill for the water this month? It, I'm on a book deadline. And I actually decided to rent space in a co-working space to get out of the house because I thought, you know what, I really, even though I could say to him, no, I don't know if we paid the bill, it was disruptive. And then once I get disrupted, then I generally go on to say, I'll think, oh, you know, I'm wondering... If uh, Zara has any new shirts that would look good with those pants, and I just Google that. I'm only, I swear to God, five minutes. And it's the rabbit hole. Yeah. I also just downloaded a program called Freedom that will lock you out of the Internet for a set amount of time, and they really lock you out. Uh, you can't override it. You can't it. change your mind. Right. I mean, in fact, somebody told me if you really have an emergency, you have to call them and say to them, seriously, I'm not just trying to see if Zara has new shirts. I really, truly need to get online. And a lot of people I know swear by it. And what's interesting to me is it creates that mental space of focus, of... Um, positive solitude because sometimes I think we hear the word solitude and think it it implies loneliness what it is is the ability to focus and to be very absorbed and a lot of times when you're writing you're not hitting the keyboard you're sitting and trying to think where is the story going what's the next step in the narrative and it's it's very difficult it's very hard to make those creative decisions and you really need to have that time of working it out in your head privately. Mm -hmm. So that's the solitude. That's what you need when you're actually writing. But you harvest quite a bit 
before you write a story. So whether you're writing about, you know, Rin Tin Tin and the history of Rin Tin Tins who are sort of like menudo, they kept changing them year <laughs> after year after year, or you're learning all you can about growing orchids or what people do around America to have fun on a Saturday night, you have to go out into the world. Right. And, and I have heard that you think of yourself as a fundamentally shy person. I think, honestly, I think probably all of us are harbor a certain amount of shyness. Um, approaching strangers is probably one of the most challenging human experiences um, for, for anybody, even people who are really outgoing. It's still a leap uh, of saying, here I am. Please accept me, don't reject me. Um, and for a reporter, it's a, it's a constant experience in, in your life, which uh, I suppose you develop techniques for making it easier, but there's still a moment of saying, here I am, please accept me. But you, you make a good point. Uh, in the kind of work that I do, as opposed to, say, a novelist, a fiction writer, there are two distinct phases of my work. The first one, which I like to think of as being a student, I'm out in the world. I'm learning everything I can learn about the subject. Um, I tend to write about things I know nothing about. So I really dive in as a student, and that means talking to people, researching, digging through archives, meeting people, learning as much as I can. Solitude is not part of that. Then there's a fundamental change that, that's really dramatic. I'm not sure if um, that many jobs have such a bifurcated uh, quality. And require you to be good at both. Exactly, that you have to be somebody who can go out in the world, interview people, dig, research, and then come back and become very quiet and become very still and focused and switch from being a student, which is really how I look at that first part, to being a teacher, absorbing everything that I've learned and then teaching my readers what I've learned. So it's almost like a, a, an entirely different persona that you have to inhabit. When I was looking at your work, particularly going back to the New Yorker essays, which is delightful. Thank and, you. And, uh, one of the things I realized is that we have changed as Americans in the course of your career. Yeah. So we share more. So when you were first going on and reporting, people were not as open as they are now through all the social media platforms through which people share everything. I mean, right. seemingly everything. You go to the grocery store and is somebody really having that conversation on their cell phone in the frozen food aisle? Right. Or you, you know, click on Facebook and it's, did they really post that? So I'm wondering if that's changed. I mean, I, I think about this also as a storyteller, as a reporter, the quality of the stories people tell. Because there might be an assumption that people are more open but I wonder if it creates a more performative space, if people are more likely to tell you the story that they've, the narrative that they've invented for themselves as they're telling their own story in a very public space. Well, I think that's such an interesting point because the fact is that we've all become storytellers in a way that when I first started my career, there wasn't a, a, a way, ex except if you were a writer, except for the one-on-one -on -one conversations we would have with friends and family, there wasn't a public narrative that was easy to engage in. And I would interview people who I truly felt had never told their stories in a public way ever. It's not that the stories were so private or so... Um, I mean, in some cases they were, but the fact is there wasn't an opportunity. There hadn't been a, a, a platform, and I shudder to use the word because it's become such a, a co-opted term, but there really wasn't... And it sounds a, a little bit like, ta-da! Yeah, I, right. Yeah, here I am standing on my platform. But, for instance, uh, one of my favorite stories that I ever did for The New Yorker, I traveled with a gospel group down south for a couple of weeks, the people who knew this group, and they were performers, but they were known only to their audience. And this was a very specific 
subculture of the African-American gospel world. Very, very much a, a very passionate, lively subculture, but one that was truly self-contained. And that was partly why I was fascinated. I thought, my God, I didn't even know this existed. This was a, a, a group, the Jackson Southerners, they sold their cassette tapes, but they had no public face beyond this subculture. There was no YouTube for yeah, them. Yeah, nothing. There was, first of all, a huge leap for me to explain to them why I would be interested. They were not readers of The New Yorker. They didn't have any stake in the readers of The New Yorker knowing their music. But it, was a, it really was reaching across worlds. So there was something really special about it. Um, I did feel that I, I was very honored that they let me in. I also felt as a storyteller that I was going to bring something to the readers at The New Yorker that they truly weren't likely to have had any contact with. Um, so there was a sort of sense of discovery and freshness that was really exciting to me. So fast forward however many years ago I wrote that piece and everybody has a Facebook page and there's YouTube and there's now I don't know that we truly know each other any better but that sense of private worlds and the, and the impenetrability of private worlds feels different I still feel that there's a huge place for a, a storyteller to enter those worlds in a deeper way and as much as the opportunity exists to go on YouTube and Google gospel groups, southern U.S., I don't know that we're doing that if we're not part of that world. So it's there to be had, but I am not sure that we have advanced as a civilization quite to the point of seeking out worlds that we don't belong to and so to me there's still such a crucial mission for writers to say yes they're now on YouTube yes they have a Facebook page but uh, there's still a place for me to say come look at a world that you probably didn't know anything about or spend any time learning about even though it's more available to you now so can you talk about what you're working on now I'd love to. Um, I'm writing a book about the Los Angeles Public Library. And this is actually a, a, a case of inverting the uh, idea of going somewhere inaccessible or unknown. But it's the other kind of story that I love to tell, which is to take something that we think we know. Of course, we all know libraries. We've all been to the library. I love these stories that are hiding in plain sight. The place that feels so familiar that it's hard to imagine that there's a story that you don't know, and yet nobody ever looked very hard at it. And so I, the big, the main public library. Yes, in the Los downtown Angeles. library. And what really triggered this? I had just moved to LA. I'd been given a tour of the library. It's incredibly beautiful, and. Part of me thought, wow, you know, I've been going to libraries my entire life, and I've never really thought about how they function. At this moment in time, there's an even bigger question of what is it that libraries give us that's special that we can't get sitting at our computers. What made it even more interesting, because I thought, wow, you know, I've never really thought about it. I really don't know how libraries work, and there are... There are these incredible crossroads That's amazing for you humanities. as a writer to say that. Yeah, you, I mean, your books are in libraries. You spend time right, in libraries. And I, I imagine I, as a kid, you probably in Ohio spent a lot of time at libraries. All the time in the world. I, I grew up going to libraries. My parents were great library goers, not such great book buyers. Their feeling was like, why would you buy a book? You can go to the library. And it, it, it was the sense of this is a place that I've never looked at closely. And suddenly it seemed like the most marvelous, complex 
truly democratic, fascinating crossroads of humanity, also at an inflection point of, you know, people saying, well, do they still need libraries? In addition, while I was being given this tour, I had this kind of remarkable experience where the person giving me the tour pulled a book off the shelf, took a deep whiff of the book. And I thought, well, I look, I just moved to L.A. I don't know, maybe people in L.A. smell books. I, I mean, <laughs> this is a whole new thing. And he said to me, uh, you can still smell the smoke in some of them. And I said, what's smoke? I said, oh, did people used to be allowed to smoke here? He said, no, 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 the fire. And I said, what fire? And he said, uh, in 1986, uh, the library was the largest library fire in the history of the, U of the United States. And I said, what? How did I not know about this? This was something that absolutely fascinated me. The idea that this dramatic event that I would have thought I would have known about had occurred. And as you probably know, the main library was closed for six years after this. So that gave me a, a great dramatic narrative because the library, it really was literally and figuratively rising from the ashes that the, the library was reborn and it, it, the life history of the library became unusually interesting because it was an arson and that got me, uh, you know, my heart racing, like an arson crime? This is fantastic. I mean, fantastic for a writer, mm -hmm. not fantastic right, in right. the world at large. But it was just such a dramatic story and the idea that how do you recover when 400,000 books have been burned up and 700,000 have been damaged and were in cold storage for six years. What, how do you and rebuild the library? And of a city yeah. that is a port for yes. so, many, so many people enter, and people don't realize that, but so many people enter America really through Southern California. Yeah, and it, it really was an a, a amazing story. And that will be published when? Should be next September. Not this September, but September 2018. So you are in your period of solitude. I certainly am. And that has been a big challenge because I have so much material that I've gathered. We're talking about 100 years of, of history, really. And just managing it and I've become an expert on things I never dreamed I'd become an expert on. Susan, thank you very much. Thank you, Michelle. Enjoy this mountain air. Oh, I am already. <laughs> this is Michelle Norris and this is the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. You've been listening to our podcast takeover series at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to Go on iTunes or your favorite podcast app or find us on SiriusXM's Insight Channel. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin, Eliza Costas, and me. Audio engineering by Corby Anderson and SiriusXM. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.